0: Collective Diaspora is a cooperative, a membership-based organization of Black cooperatives and Black-led organizations that are supporting cooperatives globally, throughout the African diaspora in particular. Our focus is really being able to connect those cooperatives and organizations on the ground that, regardless of the country that, that we're operating in, and want connections to others that are also engaged in this work. So whether it's a cooperative of solar panel installers in Harlem or it's a cooperative of artisanal miners in Colombia or cocoa growers in Trinidad, we are, we're creating spaces where we can come together, exchange information and support each other in our work, in our development. This week's guest is Omar Freya,
1: the co-founder and steering committee member of Collective Diaspora. A global community of black cooperatives and black led cooperative support organizations. Omar is a serial trailblazer, social entrepreneur, and movement builder dedicated to community self determination and regenerative economies. Drawing from his experiences growing up in the South Bronx of New York and witnessing struggles for community empowerment, he has dedicated himself to creating just and regenerative economic systems. Omar's time with the NYC Environmental Justice Alliance and Sustainable South Bronx inspired him to utilize cooperatives as a vehicle for transformative economic development. He also established green worker cooperatives and launched the first ever worker cooperative business accelerator in the United States, pioneering innovative approaches to cooperative development. Additionally, Omar co-founded several local and national cooperative support organisations, including the US Federation of Worker Cooperatives, the Democracy at Work Institute, and the NYC Network of Worker Cooperatives. Omar is also an adjunct lecturer at the City College of New York and serves on the City of New York's Environmental Justice Advisory Board and as a member of New York State's Just Transition Working Group. This interview really opened my eyes to the potential of new worker-led economic models for historically marginalized and economically exploited communities. It also has made me reevaluate the privileges I've experienced through life. Now, over to Omar. Welcome, Omar.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's nice to be here.
1: Excellent. I've been looking forward to this. So, Omar, now that we've established what you, what you do, let's start with the big questions, the big fundal, fundamental questions about
0: you. Who are you? Who are you as a human being? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm lots of things. I am I'm a parent. I'm a husband. I'm a member of a, of a community. I'm someone who believes strongly that everybody has an innate knowledge and ability to govern their own lives. And, you know, we know what we need and that we shouldn't get in the way of that. And so I'm, I'm someone who, who in, in the work that I do or that I've done, I center that I, I center that there's beauty, there's beauty in people in, in all things. And that what there is to be done is just to get out of the way and allow people to people and things to to grow and become beautiful and, Nurture that in the process. It's a, a
1: very lovely philosophy. That leads us nicely to the next question.
0: Who or what made you the person you are with that belief system? Well, well, lots of people. Lots of people and circumstances. I, I live in New York City in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, and this is where I grew up and was raised. And my, my parents, both of my parents emigrated to New York from Dominican Republic and it was my mother who who raised me she she and I in in our apartment in the Bronx and I grew up during the the 70s and 80s you know a child of the 1970s and 80s and 90s and you know those are my formative years and I grew up during the time that was really impactful for me this was a time in the Bronx and in New York City where the, where community our community had really been decimated decimated by decades of white flight of uh, manufacturing leaving the country uh, cities being abandoned being abandoned by through mm-hmm. governments you know being seen as places for second class people and so at the time that, that I grew up you know New York city had, was being disinvested mm-hmm. in the Bronx in particular and and other, other communities of color, primarily black communities, black and, and black, including not just African-Americans, but also folks from the, from the Caribbean where my family is from, Mm -hmm. who we had really, we'd been living in communities that were seen as places not worth investing in. And so the city of New York actually actively disinvested, uh, used a strategy of called plant shrinkage where communities where where services would be cut and so firehouses were were cut really necessary services were cut this is you know really emblematic of neoliberalism taking off and there was so was that the the Bronx became known as a place that was full of burning burning buildings and it was seen as a place of burning buildings because buildings were actually being burned but not by residents they were being burned right by landlords who were making an economic decision that they would get more money from insurance payments than on their property than they would on actual rental payments because people just had less and less money. So this was something that happened all over the place.
1: Contextualize that in terms of the time, because a lot of people might not be aware that New York as a city was bankrupt mm. in the 1970s, but obviously oh, the time period you're talking about must have come after that bankruptcy. That led to certain decisions around social services being, de- being deprived in certain communities. Like you're discussing in the Bronx. Absolutely. Uh, that period, it was probably around the time of Reagan coming into power and a lot of big changes happening, not just in New York, but nationally in the US yeah. with radically different economic policy that was being pursued under the previous administration well, under different. Carter. Yeah, not, not that different.
0: Neoliberalism is still very much a a driving force in the US economy and in cities because of organizing and because of, you know, folks on the left organizing and pushing back against it. It's, it's much more difficult to move forward. And there's, there's opposition to the, the practice of cutting services, to the practice of balancing, balancing the, the need for services on the backs of poor people instead of taxing companies that are earning profits. And, but we still, that is still very much the driving force behind the US, whether it's at a local city level, state level, or federal level. And we still have, you know, multinational corporations based in the US that get tax breaks that are well beyond the, what you or I, you know, av- or an average person in the in the United States is getting. It's funny you as you're
1: saying that I've had a conversation with another South Bronx resident and difference maker, Paul Lipson, mm-hmm. who I well, Paul, well. he, he you know. I'm interviewing Paul in a couple of weeks, and he was just talking about the impact and the the negative externalities of companies like Amazon having wa- sure. massive warehousing in communities like the South Bronx and the impact it has, not just on the impact of the gig workers that it draws in, but the the environmental impact of all those drivers and the and the bad air and the and the impact on on children's health and asthma levels is shocking, and that's just one organization we're talking about mm-hmm. so yeah, that's good, so please go back to your that point around this sort of the the impact on you and what made you you and and that time period. That had such an impact on your,
0: on your worldview. I'll share, I'll share a story, one moment that really stood out for me that I look back and, and just take as a something that a moment that really symbolizes the times and how I was feeling 10 years old, standing in front of my apartment building on the corner of Townsend Avenue and, and East, uh, 174th street. And on the corner of Townsend Avenue and and right next to the Cross Bronx Expressway and looking out over the Cross Bronx Expressway, my apartment building was right, right on the corner, Cross Bronx Expressway. I didn't know it at the time, but it, you know, it was, it was built when it was built, it really decimated the Bronx. And it was one of the factors that, that really furthered the spiraling of the Bronx And that led to landlords winding up burning their, burning their buildings for insurance payments. But I didn't know any of that. What I saw at 10 years old looking out were apartment buildings across the, across the the way on the other side of the, the highway and nearby several that were abandoned. And in their windows, in place of windows were silhouettes, paintings, images of of silhouettes of people, of potted plants, so that if you actually drove by, you were on the highway and you're driving by, you wouldn't notice. But if you're actually standing there looking at it, what you see is a fake window. It's wow. just something that painted that looks like there's a person there or a potted plant. And this was a practice for a few years in the 1980s that the city under Mayor Ed Koch decided to do as a way to invest money, in the buildings just enough so that if you're commuting, driving on the cross, Bronx, cross Bronx expressway, you wouldn't notice that there, was, there were abandoned buildings there. And to me, at 10 years old, I remember looking out at that and thinking one thought, they don't care about us. That was the thought that I had then at 10 years old. And they, they being the city, you know, predominantly white. And that's, that's who is in city government and us being my community, African-American, Caribbean, Dominican, Puerto Rican, you know, all, all of us who were, who were there. And, and so I completely felt left out and felt like, you know, and thought to myself, why don't they, the city invest money in actually fixing up the buildings, you know, or, you know, and allow people to actually live in them as opposed to just covering up, making them pretty for passersby. And this is, you know, this was really a symptom. This is the symptom. This is, this is part of the question of who is it that is driving decision making? Who, who is a community for? Who are the institutions for? You know, who is the housing for? Who's actually getting to say what's present? This was happening in the, in the 1980s. But at the same time, there were other people in the community who said that, you know, this is not the way it should be. And in other places, and this is what I became drawn to over time. So people who have come together and said, and, you know, in the Bronx, it was people coming together, taking over abandoned buildings, turning them into housing cooperatives, people taking over vacant lots, turning them into community gardens, basically people who are coming together in different places, organizing, creating some kind of collective ownership management of resources. And in order to meet their own needs. And that, you know, I didn't have a name for that then, but that is what cooperatives are. And that is what has attracted me to cooperatives as a form of development of communities, as a form of people coming together where there's engaging in in collective action for self-determination. So that's, that's been a big piece of that. And cooperatives, these are, these are, you know any institution business that's collectively owned and managed by its members in order to meet their need and you see them in all kinds in all in all forms in all, in all places but this this was a driving piece i wasn't i wasn't aware of cooperatives then what i was aware of was over time was community organizing i was aware of people taking these kinds of actions as a teenager uh, i fell in love with groups like the young lords Party and the Black Panther Party and, and saw these as as groups I, I knew of people who were who were part of those organizations in New York City at the time and saw them as ways where people were taking, you know, militant collective action and really organizing to meet people's needs in the community with this with this framework that there is something that is not working in our current economic system and that it's not working in the sense that it, it allows for people, people to, to live at the margins, uh, whose needs aren't being met. You know, the fact that there is inequality, we would call them, this is a market failure. The fact that, that people are, are going hungry, who have the capacity and the ability and the, the desire to, to get their needs met and, you know, to be able to put food on the table. These are breakdowns, but they're, they're intentional. They're, they're allowed, I should say, you know, they're, it's part of, it's just part of how things operate and it's accepted so that, you know, the, the example that you, you gave using talking about, um, talking about these last mile, last mile facilities that are, that are opening up in cities, you know, without regard for the environmental impact on communities, we're seen as the casualties. Uh, you know, it's, it's allowed that it's, it's okay. It's for the, for the purpose of having economic development, but that's not the only way that things need to go. And so that's, that's something that is, it's been there for me for a long time is that, you know, this is not the only way that, that there is. And what other ways are there? Let's, let's create those ways. Recounting
1: that story, that memory of looking out onto those buildings and recognizing, coming to the conclusion that, they don't care about us that sense of the recognition of the social injustice and the economic injustice that was enveloping your community did you talk to your parent or your mother about that or did you what impact did that have on you at what point did it go from just a recognition to actually saying, "I need to do something about this and that it how did it manifest itself in you in terms of you beginning to take some form of action or, or taking a direction in your life that has led you to where you are now?
0: That's a good question. You know, I, I don't recall, i be honest, I, I don't recall that 10 years old, my mother about It's that. such a vivid memory. Yeah. To have that feeling at that age. Yeah. I wonder if I did. And, and what my mother's response was, I mean, my mother's the type of person, you know, she didn't take any mess from anyone and so if we were you know somewhere at some in some government office for whatever that she would she needed to fill out paperwork for she was not one to just sit by and just be left waiting or you know get get the runaround so her voice would be heard her voice would definitely be heard so i i don't know i can make things up but i'm not going to make things up Mm. here yeah yeah but it's it's a good question i'm going to have to you know sleep on that one
1: we spoke when we were first introduced and should give a a shout out to the delightful uh, Mariana Caval that connected us when we first spoke you talked about this inclination for social justice and and the recognition you had obviously that early age and that was the the initial sort of seed that was planted inside you that you recognize the challenges that you you talked about your Desire to always take a practical approach to finding solutions to material needs, and I thought that was a lovely way of summing up action taking. A lot of people recognize and are very are impacted by social injustice and do nothing about it. What was it that made you become such a, an action taker and to to embrace the power of self determination that you talk about? Was it the impact of of, of parents, grandparents? mentors educators teachers or was it just something that
0: was natural in you sure it's it's muddy you know i i have two chil- i have two two children you know they're they're 10 and 12 and and as i've seen them grow over the years that's a question that i i i started out very much you know it's all it's all nurture but i don't know my my two kids are very are very different You know, but, you know, the circumstances change and at different points in time, two years, two years apart, I'd say for me to answer your question for when I was a young person, you know, I, I am, I'm present to the many people who had been a part of my life that go beyond, way beyond the, the stereotype of what people outside of my community, outside of any low income community of color would think is present in a community that. That was and still remains the poorest congressional district that had, you know, very little access to good quality food, where there was a high, high rate of crime. There were abandoned buildings. There were still very much, it was very much present that there were people in my community within the few blocks uh, within around my school in after school programs, people who have always been there. So I, I recall at an early age being able to go to my middle school, being a part of the marching band there and music programs that were there. I was a part, if there, anything that was going on, I was, I was a part of it. So I was a part of, of a outside of school music program as well. There was even, you know, the the cadets, which is, it's, you know, (laughs) I wouldn't have my kids in a cadet (laughs) program now. This paramilitary version of the boys. I I was in something like that as a, Hmm. As a child in my elementary school and middle school, there were teachers who I remember being pro-black, who, who were, who were very present to their own, to their own culture and their, and being able to, to maintain that and strengthen that and, and lifting up people who were active in the, so the Sojourner Truths and the Harriet Tubmans and the Frederick Douglases and the Benjamin Bannekers and all of these, these people. And at the same time, recognizing and acknowledging Puerto Rican independence freedom fighters so these were things that were just around me and they're they're always around they're they're in our community today you know this is still very much active and and present and so w- even in the midst of poverty what people outside what people outside see as as strictly poverty there's still a rich level of organizing of activism of of people just looking out for each other whether they have a political agenda or not looking out for children, kids in the community and, and helping meet each other's needs. So that piece has always been present for me. And so that's the piece that I always gravitated to. I I would say it's a bit of my mother's inclination to not take anyone's mess and seeing people who were helping to meet each other's needs in my community and recognizing the impact that that had on me, you know, that I benefited from that and wanting that for others as well. You've talked about the
1: influence of Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey on your belief in the power of individual and collective self-determination. So, when was first evidence? Let's say that your let's say your mother would have been aware of, or your teacher would be aware of that they had a, a a bit of an an action taker, an activist on their hands, someone that wouldn't sit back and just accept
0: the system for what it was. Oh, for Remember, sure. When were those first manifestations? For for sure, high school. You know, I the the memory instantly when you said that was um 19 this was yeah 1990 ish at the at the time there was a strong anti-apartheid movement you know against apartheid in south africa and i recall i, I was very much you know myself and my circle of friends we we'd started our own fraternity before we, we ever even got to college and we called ourselves the mountain of blackness and was, was our name. And, you know, I, I had decided that I wanted for us to really engage and be a part of the anti-apartheid movement and support it. And so there was, i had seen circulating a list of companies that were, that were doing business in South Africa. So there was a call to boycott, boycott products that were connected to part of companies that were, had invested in South Africa. So I, I got a hold of one of these lists Made bunches of photocopies and had planned to go out to Fordham Road in the Bronx and hand out these flyers. That day, it was a Saturday. That day, the lock on our door busted. It jammed for some reason that the door would not open. My mother took it as a sign from God that I was not supposed to go outside, that something (laughs) would happen. And, you know, keeping in mind, so my mother came from Dominican Republic. She emigrated from Dominican Republic. During, from the time, during the time of Trujillo, who was a dictator in the Dominican Republic. What was his name? Rafael Trujillo, who was a U.S. backed dictator at the time and who was killed in the mid, in the early 1960s, mid 1960s. And so her, her understanding of protests were that you would get killed. And so when, you know, I was going out, I was planning to go out and hand out, you know, these flyers. And that's the kind of thing people had been killed for in the past in the Dominican Republic. The door was jammed. She said, this is a sign from God. Don't go out. I wound up going out the fire escape. We live on the sixth floor. So I went down six stories on the fire escape to to go out. So at, at that point, she already knew, you know, she had a handful. And that, you know, I wasn't going to let a door being jammed stop me from from going out and doing what I felt was important. Today, when we talk about collective
1: action and creating sort of um, interest groups around injustice, it's easy to do with the internet and the the ease of social media and building awareness. But to do something that back then in the 90s, when mainstream media was limited to what you had on sort of the, the the channels on television and the the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Getting access to that type of information, I mean, you had to actively sort of seek out and to dig for that type of information. It wasn't easily accessible sure. to companies doing business in South Africa. So that in itself indicates that you were not just socially aware, but politically aware as well. And if the, the power that you could have as an individual and that you actually took it upon yourself to do something like that it was make a big statement for well, sure
0: yeah you know, getting information is the first is the first step and plugging yourself in to to have alternative sources and not rely on mainstream media as your only source because there are lots of voices that don't you know don't get out there and information that isn't isn't published mm-hmm. so just yeah having access to that was was key and then then taking action on it was the next step what were your early ambitions back then? Interestingly enough, my ambition, by the time I, you know, finished high school, which was at the Bronx High School of Science, was actually to do what I'm pretty close to what I'm doing now. It was to be engaged in sustainable development. My intention, I had, I had a previous dream of becoming an astronaut. And so, but I decided to to ditch that because I didn't feel comfortable with, with the pollution coming out of the space shuttle and, or with having to wear a US flag, you know, and being a poster child for, for the United Mm. States. So both of those things, the latter one being, being more significant for me at the time. But but if the Dominican
1: Republic had had a space program, that'd be a different story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I did, but I, you know, what I came to after that was traveling throughout Africa and Latin America and supporting being part of sustainable development projects and working with people on the ground to, to really meet local needs in a way that was sustainable, that, that was ecologically, you know, ecologically in sync or in sync with the, with the ecology and that mm. supported community needs. So, what sparked you your interest? Pretty much along the lines of, of where I've been at.
1: I mean, that's a, again, early proponent or advocate for environmental justice or sustainability back in the 90s. It wasn't really mainstream. I mean, there was a, a, obviously growing data of the impact that we were having on the planet, but there wasn't much evidence of people. Uh, your age really making a stand and talking about the need for sustainability in the 90s. What was it that
0: built your awareness and consciousness of the need for some form of action? I wouldn't say it's still, it's still, it's certainly not the mainstream at this point in time. And so, and I would say at any age for every generation, as long as, as, you know, society has been Engaging in rampant destruction of the environment. You know, anybody who's who's sensitive to that and who decides to move and to organize against that and in favor of sustainability is in a, a tiny minority. But regardless of that, we still keep moving. You know, that has grown. There's certainly more mainstream consciousness of environmental impacts. But that's as a consequence of The consequences of environmental destruction becoming much bigger. You know, we're seeing the things happening now. You know, the, the increased power of hurricanes and and environmental destruction, the warming weathers, changing seasons. We're seeing those things now that others had been talking about 30 years ago. So. You know, it's just as as it becomes more more obvious, more people are being are becoming engaged. For me, then, what impacted me and had me aware was, you know my my mother and I was were big fans of watching watching nature shows on television. so public television, p b s always ran the nature series, so I would sit there. You know, in the evenings with my mother, and we we'd hear David Attenborough and his British now lions <laughs> and and cheetahs, and you know it was it wasn't until later I started to wonder, well, where are the people in this? But you know, even even with that, it was it had me aware present to the to the environment as as something to care about. It was it, it later on i became i became present to the need to integrate the full environment the full picture including the urban environment into that picture of what is the environment and what is it that we need to care about but that as far as an early point you know that was that was an entry an entry place for me it was much it was not too much later on but but it was it was a bit you know somewhat later on where i became aware of the environmental justice movement that had been growing in the united states you know, from, from the South to, to New York to California, where people are being community, community residents are, were engaged in fights against polluting, polluting facilities, whether it's toxic landfills or power plants or, you know, chemical companies, where in each of these places, the dynamics of race, uh, racism were still, were very much present. And it's in recognizing that my academic and, you know, interest and, in, and personal interest in the environment got melded with, with my passion for racial justice in my communities. And so those two came together in the environmental justice movement.
1: You went to study at Moorhouse College and then laterally at Miami University. How did activism manifest itself during those early,
0: during those educational sort of periods? The connection of, um, particularly the connection of the environment, the cooperatives, self-determination as a, as a concept really came together for me during those years when I was in college, not in the academic setting, but outside of the university where I, I started, I started at Morehouse College in 1991. That very spring, Rodney King applies. Really took off. And for those who, who don't know, Rodney King was our equivalent of George Floyd. He was the first, first person who was beating black man who's beating what by police was actually caught on videotape. They had tape then, not phones. And it really set off, you know, a huge, a movement. It, the, the trial and the acquittal, the acquittal of the police that were, that engaged in that beating. Really, you know, it touched a nerve all across the country and it led to uprisings from to- that, that moment for us, for me on that, on the campus of the Atlanta University Center, which is Morehouse College, Spelman College, Parkland University, Morris Brown College, all of them together. That really became a spark, a galvanizing point. And so it brought many students together across the, the campuses to form an organization became known as Students for African American Empowerment. And we, we organized and we, you know, we were involved in, in protests against the Confederate battle flag on the, on the Georgia state flag, actually burned the, the battle flag off of the, off of the state flag several times. And, you know, today it's, it's no longer, it's no longer there. It was, it was removed some years later. But these and, and many other actions were ones that, that we engaged in. I became very focused on, on issues of economics. And so that, that became, um, an important place for me to, to really focus in on what were the things that could really impact, impact our communities that could really impact the, the daily life, the meeting the needs of people in our community, black people and really creating the space for that. And so that is when I, I really started to think about cooperatives as a place for organizing. Cooperatives, you know, having institutions, businesses that are owned and controlled by their members, whether they're shoppers at a supermarket or workers or otherwise employees at a at any business, or whether people coming together as producers to to get their needs met, to lower costs, to Really be able to get their, their product and empower people themselves to really own and control their own enterprises. So the Federation of Southern Cooperatives was, was one that I had heard of. So that was a, they're, they're like the godparents of black cooperatives. These were people who really were, were important, important in the movement. And I saw as really a place that people who reflected me and reflected others around me in taking this idea of cooperative enterprises and really putting it into practice right there in the community, in this, in this case, in the, in the South. And so that was, that was an important example, example for me at the time, and that has just grown over the years.
1: And you had that light bulb moment that I heard you talk about on, in 2003, when you were back in the South Bronx, to when you began focusing on not just cooperatives, but growing green businesses. Can you describe that?
0: Yeah, so I'd put cooperatives to the to the side to to really focus in on environmental justice issues. I came back to New York to New York City, began working with the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance and was really engaged in supporting community organizing on the ground, fighting polluters. And within that there was always the question that people would ask, well, if not these dirty polluters, then what? What what are you offering? They're promising jobs even though the jobs didn't actually materialize they were promising jobs. And so it became clear that alternatives needed to be created that could actually meet needs. And so I and others became involved in searching for those green businesses, those green alternatives. Basically, I, I was looking for benevolent green capitalists that would you know, parachute out of the sky, wanting to operate in the South Bronx or in Brooklyn and other places, and was having, surprisingly, a really hard time finding any. So After a point, it it became frustrating and throughout it was, it was frustrating because I was also never particularly comfortable with the approach of just looking for some benevolent capitalists, but really began then to ask myself, well, if not this, then what? What would an ideal business be? What would, what would a business look like that I would feel comfortable with that would be a good neighbor just by its structure? Not because of the the whims of a founder who would eventually leave, but is actually the structure of the business made it so that it became a good neighbor, that was good to its workers and good to the surrounding community. And that clicked for me in that moment. What could do that was actually the cooperative business structure, particularly worker cooperatives as far as being, being good neighbors, but cooperatives generally that these are, these are businesses that are owned and controlled by their members and their members are from the community. And so to the extent that members are from the community, then the operations of that business are going to be one that meets community needs broadly because nobody wants to gas their own neighbor and they don't want to gas their neighborhood. So you put things in place that are actually able to ensure that your community doesn't wind up being Getting the raw end of the deal that doesn't wind up being a dumping ground for polluting industries. I had seen too many instances and fought against too many companies that had overseas headquarters or out of state headquarters, you know, CEOs and and management and employees in some cases who did not live in the in the community that they were operating in, particularly at the at the upper management level. But there was always a recognition, you know, if the smokestack actually pointed to your boardroom. You would be making very different decisions, and so to bring an ecological reference in, we talk about negative feedback loops. You know, a negative feedback loop is an, an action that results in a in a negative impact uh, that winds up coming back to you, and that in turn you you are you feel since you're feeling the impact, then you change your your you have sense you're going to change your action your next action. So you know having businesses. That have these built in negative feedback loops that say, okay, we won't pollute because if we do, it's going to immediately hurt our interests. You know, that's the kind of structural change that needs to happen, but that's not how our economic system operates. We have businesses that don't feel the impacts of their, of their actions. Impacts are external. The costs are all externalized. It, whenever there's a, an impact on any, on a worker's health or safety, on a community's health or safety, those impacts are, they're offloaded. The company doesn't have to pay for those in any kind of way. So if we, if we look at how to actually structure a business that does, then we have to look at, you know, who are the owners? Who are the workers? Who are the people that, that have to bear the direct cost of that, that have to feel the direct impact of that? Of that decision to to pollute, that decision to say to workers, we're not going to invest in protective equipment. We're going to put the burden on you to protect your own, your own self, your own health and safety. It's very, a very different kind of circumstance. You know, I'd I'd visited a, a worker-owned factory in the Mondragón region in Spain. And something I share often with people is I was I was blown away by one instance. Where I'm walking through the plant and there's these, there are these huge silo, these uh, silos within the middle of the factory floor that in, in any other plant in the US would have been extremely loud to the point of being deafening. But in this particular plant, it was actually dead quiet and. What was brought to my attention and to the attention of others is that the reason why it was dead quiet was because the workers in the plant made the decision that instead of putting the burden on themselves, on individual workers to wear active yeah. ear you know, equipment, that they would actually just cover the source of the, of the noise, being the silos themselves, and just covered them completely. And so that puts the burden, then it puts the cost on the company as a whole to protect its workers as opposed to the individual workers themselves to protect their own hearing. That's a huge difference. And that's, that's what it looks like when you make a structural change that has deeper and deeper impacts. It's funny, when
1: there, there aren't any, not that I'm aware of anyway, any venture capitalists exist to help grow and nurture cooperative-based business- businesses. Maybe that is something that, that needs to manifest to actually sort of accelerate sort of the changes that you're talking about.
0: By and large, uh, you're right. There there are not venture capitalists that are beating down the doors to invest in cooperative enterprises or worker-owned enterprises. They don't see them as being able to generate the high rates of return that they're looking for. And because they, they're not set up for that. They're, they're set up to meet the needs of their members and generating, generating a return for their members. But I I will say there is a growing movement of people who are engaging, um, and are really developing a field called non-extractive finance that are Mm -hmm. out to, to really create vehicles and channels for those with wealth to invest in cooperatives and cooperative development. And so there are great organizations like the Seed Commons Cooperative, which is, uh, operates across the U S and these are a network, a cooperative of local, local cooperative development lenders who invest in cooperatives. They're, so they're called Seed Commons. And uh, so it's a great, a great network, a great cooperative of all of these different local lenders. And all they've pooled their money together so that they're able to, to make bigger deals. And they, they offer financing to cooperative enterprises with terms that aren't what, what are called extractive. They're, you know, you, you get a loan from a bank and the payment is due the very next month. And regardless of whether you actually have broken even or not, or you have the ability to pay in their case with the, the whole concept of non extractive financing is. You're out to support the growth and development of the enterprises themselves. And so you want to get them to a place where they've, they at least they've broken even, and they're, they're starting to generate a return and that takes time. So it's patient capital in that sense. So, you know, there, there's a growing movement of that and, but it's, there's needs to be a recognition that it has to operate outside of the terms that have driven capitalist finance. And so if you look at the, the field of finance, you're this is where wealth has been generated. And most of it is artificial. You have people that are getting wealthy off of the, off of trading, off of just trading, you know, things that are symbols of of wealth and symbols of of businesses. So, you know, we we need something different and something that re- really supports the growth of this of what we call the solidarity economy and you know which is really an economy that is about that is centering people people meeting each other's needs and supporting each other
1: i think maybe we need to rephrase and redefine what a rate of return is it's, it's not in terms of the return on 10x on their on their capital investment right. but it's the return in a, in
0: a broader sense the return on human relationships. It's a return on, it's a return on human capacity, social networks. It's a return on, on environmental sustainability. So it's a return on, on all of these things, but those things aren't counted. They're, they're not counted, you know, in the, you know, when, when you do your tax returns, they're not counted, sure. you know, it, they're not kind of counted towards financial benchmarks. What is counted and, and what typical investors are looking at are the financial rates of returns. I mean, yeah, thank you for, for you know highlighting that. But we do need to move towards other measures, other benchmarks that include sustainability, that, that include our own human relationships.
1: Well, this is probably a good point for you to then talk about what you're working to achieve before you <laughs> shuffle off this mortal coil. You've, you've created uh, something called the Collective Diaspora. And you're having, you are having impact. You are creating rates of return that are beyond just the financial benchmarks and changing people's lives, not just in New York and the South Bronx, but increasingly internationally. So could you maybe just start to describe? So,
0: you know, it's having an impact broadly is certainly our, our goal and our intention. I had been. Over the years, had many people have reached out to me who are looking for support, and in their in their work, and you know, but there wasn't a way for a vehicle for that because when you're engaged in local organizing in your community, there's not a whole lot of bandwidth to really be building solidarity and exchanging information with other groups in other places, and so it's but it's important, it's necessary having those kinds of those spaces. Where we exchange information. This is, that's about movement building. And, you know, movement building is critical in order to sustain the growth of, you know, even on the local level, because the work that happens on the local level is directly connected to solidarity with other communities in other places. And that's, that's essential. When, you know, taking it back to when I was a, a high school student, what I was doing as a young person supporting an anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa would not have happened without people people in New York City who were collecting information about companies that were doing business in South Africa who were in communication with people fighting apartheid directly in South Africa and with community-based organizations that were engaged in their own struggle black organizations who were gained gained in their engaged in their own struggle for self-determination for community control of of resources in Brooklyn or the Bronx or Harlem, who saw a connection with their brothers and sisters and siblings in South Africa, and being able to come together to exchange information and resources—that's what strengthens movements in both places. So that's what we're looking to do. What, what we want is we want to support the growth of, of this global Black solidarity economy. There's a solidarity economy, a movement all across the world where people are are engaged in cooperatives and mutual aid projects and really coming together with other mechanisms for measuring growth and development then and, and whether you know even to public banking so these are all things that are under this umbrella of a solidarity economy but in order to have a solidarity economy that is powerful that's strong that's coming from the bottom up then there have to be these strong networks And in our case, what we're really focusing on is ensuring that racial justice, that gender justice are at the center of that, and that the needs of Black communities that are racial minorities in countries like the U.S. or are in countries that are predominantly Black but are still struggling under the yoke of neocolonialism in the Caribbean, in Central South America, or on the African continent that all of us are able to come together and support each other's needs so that we're not reliant on wealthier white communities just hoping for, you know, what's left over from our liberal or investors, you know, that are dealing with their, we're still dealing with their own racial baggage. So, you mm-hmm. know, we want to make sure that we're supporting each other in our own growth and development.
1: As you're talking about that, where you're not reliant on traditional sort of white, as you say, neo-colonial structures, just from a, from a practical sort of standpoint, if a, let's say, a group of individuals come together in, let's say, New York and want to create a cooperative-based business, what's the difference in terms of how would they go about creating that structure? Is there a framework for what a cooperative is? I mean, I'm familiar with cooperatives because I grew up in the UK and the cooperative movement was a, began with something called the Rochdale Pioneers in 1844 and became a £35 billion sector in the UK. But it's not, people aren't as familiar with cooperatives, in, I think, in the US. So could you maybe just explain if some, a group of people did want to come together to create a cooperative-led or a cooperative-based business, how did they go about the financing for it? What's the form, the the process of a formation of a company? If it's, is it an LLC? Is it a a non LLC? Is it a,
0: is there another structure? Okay. So there are a few different avenues or uh, a few different balls that are, that one is juggling when you're launching a cooperative. So if anyone here, anyone listening wants to launch a cooperative of their own, there are a few things you need to be mindful of. So first, what the country that you're in or the, the state, if you're in the United States, you know, the state that, that you're in has its own laws that impact how you are actually going to formally structure, if you choose to, to formally structure your cooperative enterprise. And so certainly having legal support that, that guides you through that process is key. So I would recommend first or anyone engaging in this. To really find people who can support them. So there's legal support. There's the, there's support and the work that needs to happen just related to your governance structures, how you choose to operate. A cooperative is still a business. It's important and it's, it's critical that you really be clear on your business model, how you're actually going to be able to provide the resources that you want, the resources that you want to provide, whether you're installing solar panels, or whether you're you're running a mining operation or you're running a you know some artisanal jewelry operation or cl- consulting whatever it is that you're doing you need to be clear on what you're offering your customers how you're meeting their needs you know what are the resources that you, that you require who are your key partners your your activities the channels that you're you're using to to get product A to customer customer A and all of those, those things are things that you need to work out, whether you're a traditional capitalist business or whether you're a cooperative. That's something you want to be, be really clear on. Beyond that, though, there's, and what distinguishes a cooperative is your governance structure, who owns and controls and being clear on that and having the conversations amongst each other. I mean, you can, you can have those conversations yourselves. Certainly getting support from others who've been down that road helps so there are a number of networks globally you know that people can can tap into for folks in the in the united states there's the national cooperative business association as an all encompassing their trade organization of cooperatives of of many different types and the worker cooperative sector there's the us federation of worker cooperatives in europe there are you know a number for every you know many countries in europe in in Africa, there's a new entity called Cooperation Africa. In the Caribbean, Caribbean, Central, South America, there's there are different sectors for for different, each each country. Collective diaspora is working across borders, and so we are serving to connect people to resources and each other, cooperatives to each other in different countries. And so, you know, have being a, a repository for information across borders is something that we're. We're working to develop. I wish we had that right now on our on our site, mm-hmm. but we but we don't, but that is that is in development that is th- so that's
1: exciting because that's definitely what's going to be needed for people to come together, find that resource to feed off each other's experience and knowledge and and to have absolutely. those resources to accelerate the the growth of this type of structure.
0: Just having the information is is the first step because it's mm-hmm. not something it's not something that's taught it, it's not taught in most places it's in business school no. yeah it's not the, the the typical way of starting businesses so it's not talked yeah. about you know not only in business schools but even just in popular discourse you know mm. on television or you know on in social media it's not it's not the way <laughs> you wouldn't see it someone pitching it a short in chart tank <laughs> no no you'd get lots of lots of uh, strange looks yeah lots of strange looks and bizarre questions so you
1: you're a fellow of something called echoing green Yes. Um, that's right. Could you could you just describe what that is in New York and the impact that's had on you?
0: Well, Echoing Green, the Echoing Green Fellowship is awarded every year to change makers around the world, actually. And so I was I received an Echoing Green Fellowship this past year. So less than a year ago. So I'm still in the first that year of the of the fellowship. And so it's been it's been a great Resource certainly it's provided some initial funding to be able to launch collective diaspora and so it's allowed me the space to be able to engage in this work. To coordinate activities for our our steering committee. we're a 14 person steering committee and that's building this out and really building out the infrastructure that we need in order to, to launch this. We have we have many big aspirations. you know some of the uh, initial ones that' we're, what we're currently working on is really mapping out the global black solidarity economy and really, and building out a, a platform that allows a crowdsourced platform that allows people t- to identify black cooperatives in their own country, in their own, in their own place. So that, that would be a first place, a first, a starting point to be able to identify where these cooperatives are and where the organizations are that support them, because that's a key, that's a key piece we are often, too often, we're operating under the radar, without resources, whether it's the cooperatives or the community-based organizations that are supporting them, that are themselves struggling for capital to be able to do this work, because the communities that that we're operating in are marginalized communities. And so it's critical that we we be able to uplift the work of each of these organizations and the cooperatives so that people can know about them and support them and say, you know, I want to buy my chocolate from, you know, from these Black producers in their countries that are directly benefiting, that are, you know, the, the wealth that's being generated is staying with them in their communities, among, with the workers and the, and the growers. So I want to buy from the Cross-Atlantic Chocolate Collective as opposed to Nestle. But you wouldn't, if you didn't know that Cross Atlantic Chocolate Collective exists, then you would never be able, you would never find them because Nestle you see everywhere. So Nestle or Godiva or any, any of the other. So it's important that we have platforms that really uplift and center these alternatives so that these alternatives can become mainstream.
1: It was a book I read earlier this year or late last year and the name is What We Owe the Future by Douglas McCaskill. And, and McCaskill believes in the effect of altruism. And he had this line at the end of the book that really hit me and, and made me sort of question my own sort of actions and life direction. And he said, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? And f- as you just sort of described the sort of the journey you've been on, it's very much... That's that is you, you know. If not you, then who? You have taken these actions, and, but it's also one that's, that's broader than the individual. It's it's almost like a collective call to people to form to say you don't have to go down the traditional path. And I'm, the reason I mention it is I'm, another book that's had an impact on me is by a guy called John Alexander. He's written a book called Citizens, and he argues that the issue we've got with our broken system is it's a, it's a consumer-led story that we've been, we've been conditioned to believe in. And we have to move away from that consumer-led story to a citizen story. He said, because that's what we ultimately are. It's a more natural condition and story. And he said, we're in this process, this liminal sort of phase where we're moving away from the consumer story. And we have to because it, our, everything around it is broken. And the way he talks about in the book, The Citizen Story, and the, the movement he's set up in the UK, and will increasingly move international, is very aligned with the, the type of solution that you're building through cooperatives. And it's the same question. People go, well, it's all very well saying the consumer story is broken, but give us a solution. And I think that's what people are looking for are alternatives to the the fractured system that we've been living under, under these traditional sort of business, hierarchical, top-down, white-led, as you say, neo-colonialism. It's a throwback to the the old industrial age. As we're moving forward to a new age, we need new systems. And your, let's say, collective-led, cooperative-powered movement is more natural to the way that communities used to operate. In a pre-industrial age it is more natural it is more citizen-led so it feels it's it feels very empowering and and although you are focused very much on these marginalized the marginalized communities black and and latin communities in like new york and increasingly in in the caribbean and beyond it is something that's going to appeal to other uh communities not just black and latin people that feel they've been economically exploited by the 0.1% of the 1% and being left behind. Because I, I just look at when I'm back in Britain and you can see the impact on communities that have been left behind if you go outside of London and the, the devastating impact of, of exploitation. And the same way that in the in the 1800s that the Rochdale pioneers created the British cooperative movement, maybe what you're doing is you're the the spark that through collective diaspora ignite a new movement of cooperatives. And what you're doing is you're just setting the framework and, as you say, creating this this directory, this resource where people can learn from each other. And if we are going to create a more sustainable, solidarity driven economy that isn't based on traditional sort of capitalist structures,
0: it needs to be embraced by all communities so you know something to be to be present to is that yes. my my outlook is that there is no new spark or there, there isn't you know a spark of a new for a new movement there has been there has always been you know as you you mentioned earlier there's been a way of operating a way of managing and distributing resources that people have been doing doing collectively Since we've been living together in human societies, way we have been distributing resources has changed over time. Uh, You know, we've, we've gone through different stages from feudalism to mercantilism into, into capitalism. And so the, the, the push towards industrialization has been very much, you know, a part and product of this, of capitalism and this, and this shift. And that has introduced a way of operating, a way of, you know, setting up enterprises that have this employer employee relationship that really drives as as driven has driven this i see the the counter to that you know we've been calling the solidarity economy this is something that has been in place for a long time and uh you know the cooperatives the within that mutual aid societies you know rotating savings and credit associations things that people are doing to meet each other's needs have been a part of that and always a part of that. The work that we're doing at Collective Diaspora is to strengthen a piece of that, to strengthen that within marginalized Black communities that have borne the brunt of capitalism's effects since the the dawn of the transatlantic slave trade, which was right there uh, and nurtured the growth of capitalism. It was, both things were happening at the same time. And so, and that sense of history is often absent from how we think of economic development. But so this is something that our, our view is that without, without a strong focus directly on the communities that have been marginalized, where the communities themselves are able and have a place to be able to develop the resources and, and, really, and to really focus in, then no one else is going to be able to move any further. You can't be free if anyone in your community is not free because the impacts are going to be felt by everyone so there's been you know since you you referred to the rushdale pioneers of of england their development the development of of predominantly white cooperatives you know these predominantly white cooperatives have have long existed so their growth and development will continue but without the growth and development of cooperatives in the communities that have been exploited then we can't have a shift away from from capitalism and it's the, the the worst of it you know and into a different kind of economy we can't evolve into something else i've used a reference before related to the environment where you have communities that have been used as dumping grounds. you know there's a kettle or a, a pressure cookers pressure cookers our crock pots have these steam release valves. Yeah, and those yeah. steam release valves allow for, once the pressure builds up in the system, for the steam to escape. Without those steam release valves, what, what you have is a pipe bomb. And so, Black communities around the world have been that steam release valve. And so, with as long as it has been the presence of these communities, indigenous communities, around, you know, in the, in the Western hemisphere have been that steam release valve. And it's, it is our communities that have been the dumping grounds for waste that have been the places to site factories that have that contaminate and pollute. These are the places where the worst of corporate abuses are practiced on workers that come from these communities, come from our communities. And so as long as, as our communities are allowed to remain these release valves, then the worst of capitalist development will still exist and will still be present. So for the sake of white cooperators looking to create alternatives, it is critical that black, black communities have strong cooperative movements, and that the alternatives that are really are focused on communities that have been the most marginalized. So that's, that's how I, how I see things. In order to really have to push all of society towards an alternative, uh, towards a different way of structuring our economy, then the most marginalized really have to be centered and focused on because that's where the, the weakest links are, where the chain has been broken, where the, the excesses of society, the market failures are operating and in place. We would not have a climate disaster happening presently. We would not be talking about global climate change or the melting of, of polar ice caps. If those communities, if Louisiana didn't have a cancer alley where you have black communities that are the, the, these hotbeds of chemical ref, of oil refineries and chemical plants that have been polluting for so long, for decades upon decades. So it's these places where these are where the smokestacks are. That emit the pollution that go into the atmosphere that trap the the gases that are heating the planet. So those are the places where our focus and efforts have to be.
1: That's brilliant. That's really clear to address the you know the exploitative and extractive impact that these businesses have had on, on these communities. You're right. It it has to change, but it's probably sort of it's slow. There's there needs to be more awareness of the what you're sure. talking about than there is at the moment. But what you've done brilliantly there is you've, you've pieced together the fact that it's not just about environment. You can't look at that independently without thinking about it in terms of the exploitative nature of the way that our economy has been on these communities of color. Absolutely. And whether it be indigenous sort of people or even within the, sort of the, the US or in my country in the UK, the reimagining of business starts at, at a community level so what you're doing is incredibly important i mean with collective diaspora i mean you've you've been on this journey for a while you've got this echoing green fellowship you've got a long way to go <laughs> but you're obviously sort of a very driven individual what's your ambition for a key date like 2030 that's been set by the un sustainable development goals for hitting certain target climate targets You must have your own ambitions of where you want to be by 2030 and beyond.
0: I I tend to make, uh, I tend to have lofty ambitions that time frame comes and you wind up having to to push those back. So with that, I
1: I will say, I I, I recently interviewed a coach called Barbara Dowst and she talked about having big, hairy, audacious goals. But underneath those big, hairy, audacious goals, having smart goals are your steps to get there. Yes,
0: that is that is critical. I'm I'm learning to get better at that, mm. for sure. You know, I, for Collective Diaspora, our our goal, our intention is that we are able to connect Black cooperatives and Black-led organizations supporting cooperative development with each other across borders, and that. You know, what I see in seven years, because we're in 2023, so 2030 is just seven years away, that we have deepened relationships. We have connected people and organizations that weren't connected before. We've deepened relationships. We've put cooperatives and organizations on the map with others around the world, and we've facilitated opportunities for trade between them so that there is a greater sense of solidarity, of Pan-African Black solidarity across borders that is leaving mov- local movements stronger in stronger positions so that we have groups that are in Colombia in Trinidad that are you know in much stronger positions and are able to advocate for themselves with the full knowledge and support of their brothers and sisters and siblings that are organizing for to similar effect and with similar circumstances in other countries as well so, you know, what we're out is to build a, a strong movement of organizations, and we have a strong member-led cooperative that operates across borders and is raising the profile for Black cooperatives across the board.
1: How do you get funding? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Well, yeah, no, yeah, no, the reason. Operating right
0: now with a fellowship from, from Echoing Green. And mm-hmm. so a big piece of my job now is really beating the bushes and, and finding the support, mm-hmm. institutional, individual donors. So we are certainly looking for support. So if anyone out there mm-hmm. to donate, please do. You can reach us, uh, uh, collective diaspora. We are on all the, all the socials and online. And yeah, we're, what we're looking for is to really, is to really build out that base of support that unfortunately hasn't been there. It's difficult for cooperatives, for those who are, who are developing cooperatives, and mm-hmm. it's especially difficult for people of color who are mm-hmm. Black and Indigenous in particular that are organizing for the development of cooperatives.
1: You're an exe- essentially an accelerator for cooperative startups. And as you, because if you think about likes of Y Combinator, they all learn from each other, these businesses, they all benefit from the the mistakes, the learnings, as they, they, it becomes a process of emergence, and you're at that early phase. So, in a sense, anyone that's investing and supporting you is helping accelerate the growth of new economic model Absolutely. that will benefit both the planet and the, and the people, and these exploited communities that have borne the brunt of the extractive sort of a traditional economic model So there are organizations. I mean, I think it makes me think as you're talking of someone like, you're familiar with Acumen? No. Jacqueline Novokratz's organization. Okay. She's, she's great. I went to an event of Jacqueline's and Acumen back in 2019 before the pandemic and they, she, she invests in a lot of indigenous sort of based businesses in Africa and in Colombia. And a reason when you're talking about the chocolate, I met the founder, who came from Colombia, of a, a chocolate brand that she supports, mm-hmm. and is very much in the model. I don't know if yeah. they're a cooperative, but it was a really interesting business. Great no to know. So I would, I would reach out to Jacqueline if I were you and the Acumen Movement. Connect us, please. Well, I, I, the amazing. problem is, I don't, I don't. I've been trying to get to Jacqueline for a long <laughs> time. She's one, she's one step away hey. from me in my connections, but I will do. But, but I think my role is, in what I'm doing with the podcast, is to start to co- connect other difference makers and change makers and people that want to see be- a better alternative, mm-hmm. but might not be aware of people doing important work that is aligned with their interests. So anything I can do to connect you to some of my other guests where there might be some benefit from you coming together is what I'm trying to do with this, These what I'm
0: calling random collisions. Yeah. So engineering random collisions. It's always appreciated. It is, you know, I, I had previously when I was doing this work locally in, in New York city, being able to secure funding, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for the work for supporting cooperative development, particularly in a low income community of color, was always, always a challenge and always difficult. There was the hurdle already of cooperatives and, and. Really, people seeing the value of that as an alternative, and then on top of that, there's the skepticism that that people of color, particularly Black people, are able to start businesses. That it's a safer bet to engage in workforce development strategies to to train people for jobs. But I know you know many people who have been engaged in workforce development strategies that. They always they run into this this challenge of you know you train people for work but where do they go? Where is the work for them when the businesses aren't hiring? When the people that they send who are qualified go for jobs and they're passed over, and they're passed over, you know they're they're looked over, you know partly because they are they are black, they're coming from a low income community, seen as people without with very little skill, even though they may have come. It would have come from, you know, a training program and and our skill, but there's still bias that's out there. But even on top of that, there's still the fact of, you know, the employers have to be out there. And so what has, what I've seen and, you know, and, and always get excited about is when we have people that are come together because they said, you know, we, we tried going the route of, of getting work and people wouldn't hire us. So we decided to come together and hire ourselves. You know, that's, it's with Solar Uptown Now Services, they're solar installers in Harlem. They went through a a workforce training program run by West Harlem Environmental Action to train people on solar and to be solar panel installers, because they saw this as a, you know, pathway into a green economy and creating, creating work for people. But then they trained workers and the workers went out and they couldn't get jobs. They, they had the skill, they would go to potential employers who would pass them over pass them over for people in their own social circles. So have uh-huh. predominantly white business owners. They're going to be hiring predominantly white employees because that's who's in their social circle. You hire first from the people, people that you know, people that you trust. So if you're outside of that, then you're you're really out of the loop. So there are lots of hurdles that, that people have to overcome. Black people in particular have to overcome in order to to create pathways for ourselves
1: the if someone hears this and goes, I, will, I this is exactly what I want to do how would they go about starting a cooperative and becoming part of your collective diaspora
0: so first step for anyone who wants to connect with collective diaspora is to fi- find us online so we're at diaspora.coop that's actually a it's a new domain we're just transitioning our website from collectivediaspora.org to diaspora.coop so go to diaspora.coop. We are on social medias or Instagram. It's Collective Diaspora. And get in touch with us. We can connect. We can connect any uh, aspiring Black cooperative or co-op development organization that is looking to connect with others. We will do that work and connect you with wherever, wherever you are and bring you into the network. We are taking on new members. So people can go to our site to join up either as a cooperative or as a, as an organization that is supporting that work and also affiliates. So we're particularly looking for, we want to to uplift and connect black technical assistance providers. So people who are not necessarily part of an organization, but they are, you know, maybe you're, you're within a law firm. Or you're operating out of, you're operating out of some predominantly white institution, but you want to have that network of black technical assistance providers and be connected to black co-ops, black cooperatives. So with that's, there's a space for that as well. So cool. So you can find us, you can find us online.
1: Mm -hmm. Anyone that's going through building a business and creating change faces face barriers, face resistance to old, particularly when it's such an ingrained system, you are really trying to create something that's radic- radically, well, not as you say, Cooperatives have been around for an eternity, um, but you're trying to overcome the, a traditional entrenched system. How do you remain sort of resolute and resilient when the journey at times must be hard?
0: Hmm. Well, you know, I find I find joy in the moments when I see people coming together and enjoying each other. And within within cooperatives, it's it's seeing people who are forming cooperatives for the first time and seeing the immediate benefits. You know, they they've started work. They they went through the challenge of of figuring out how to work together without killing each other. And getting to that place and that, that is powerful and seeing that happen is powerful. Then they're actually working together and they start to see the returns. They're, they're completing, you completed a job cross Atlantic chocolate collective that I mentioned earlier. We, we connected them with cooperators in the, in the U S and they, they were connected to equal exchange. And so equal exchange just purchased a, got, put in a huge order. So they completed 18,000. They fin- you know produce eighteen thousand bars of chocolate and, and that are now available through Equal Exchange. So if anyone's listening wants some chocolate from Cross Atlantic Chocolate Collective, go to Equal Exchange and you can buy it through their platform. But having having those kinds of wins brings me brings me joy and it's it, it that's what brings me satisfaction. You can see you know little lights at the end of tunnels uh-huh. that get you a little further. As long as it's not an oncoming train, then. <laughs> what would you describe as your natural gifts or talents? I have a I have a talent for being persistent. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> I have a talent for for setting big visions and moving forward on those and being persistent around those. I also I'd say I've been I've been good at really uh, lifting up those around me, which is what calls me to this. Being this role of a of a connector and network builder. So really playing that that role, that's something that I have a I have a gift for, and that is a part of what Collective Diaspora is about and what I'm excited about in Collective Diaspora. It's really lifting up the work of those around me and and really being able to help put things in place so that everyone's able to get their needs met. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and what do people compliment you for?
0: Being patient. Being pa- Patience and persistence are two great characteristics. Yeah, go together. Yeah. Being patient, being, being calm, you know, just being reflective on occasion. Mm-hmm. My wife says I'm not reflective enough, but being reflective.
1: <laughs> Obviously, anyone that. Within the communities that you're talking about, once create a, a cooperative, they know where to go. But what about people that might be in, let's say, white communities that want to help and take action? What would you recommend people do to help address, however small, just some of the injustices that still remain, whether it be social injustice, environmental injustice? I think there is a collective awareness of increasing injustice exists at all parts of society. And I think there's a a yearning people have to do something about it, but often feel helpless in the face of what seems to be insurmountable challenges particularly around the environment. But you know, from the journey you've been on, that change doesn't happen overnight. It can be a result of small actions that you you have to take to get you to your destination. And it is all about the journey. So what would your advice be to people that may want to take action, but maybe aren't? What should they do?
0: Well, you asked specifically about people who are white.
1: I think so because, say, I mean, you've, you're creating an opportunity mm-hmm. definitely to help black communities and marginalized communities and communities that have been exploited. But for those people that might be, you know, there's a lot of people in my social networks, what yeah.
0: could they do? So I think that there, there are two things in particular that I think are essential for anyone who is white. And I say that regardless of the country, country that they're in. That is one uplifting or uh, centering the, the leadership of those who are most marginalized. In particular, in terms of racial justice, talking about black and indigenous people, wherever they are, uplifting their leadership and, and experience. So that means that if you are engaging in some kind of policy effort, fundraising, funding effort, some initiative, That is attempting to address some, the social needs that you recognize that you are not the ultimate expert, that your experience should, your experience and what you think is appropriate should not be driving the discussion. What should be driving the discussion are the needs of those who are actually being directly impacted on the ground. So that's one is, is center the leadership of those that are most marginalized. The other is recognizing your own privileges. And by that, I mean the things that got you to the position where you are, cur- you currently find yourself in this opportunity, having this opportunity to make decisions for other people. We all make, we all can make a choice at any given moment. If I, if I am in a circle of people and I'm being asked what Do I think should be done for some other group that is not a group I belong to? I can make a choice to either go along with it and give my suggestion or, you know, trying to turn the tables and uplift someone else's leadership. But that requires that, that I be reflective on what got me to that place in the first place. If it's my own financial backing, in my case, I'm a cisgender male. I own a home. You know, I've gone to not not just undergraduate, but graduate school. So there's a, there's a class difference between me and some of many of most of my neighbors. You know, that's something that I have to be present to. I'm engaging in work that is across borders, but I was born and raised in the United States, even though my family is from the Dominican Republic and I am, I am black and identify as, as black. And I've grown up that way in the United States. I still have a U.S. passport. So I can go to places without being stopped at, at immigration without, I can go to places without having to stand, wait for years for a visa. I can get de- preferred treatment in another country because people will see me as being from the U.S. and you know, the privileges that, that come with that. So those are things that I have to be present to just in our own conversations around how we build this international cross border alliance because everyone is not coming from that from that kind of a place so those are things that you know to, to be reflective of your own your own social position whether it's we're talking right now US related to to race but you know it's across the board race gender class sexuality you know all the different manifestations nationality all of those things so those two things you know okay. uplifting the leadership of those most marginalized and being reflective of your own social position or your own privilege. Well, I
1: really look forward to witnessing the growing impact that you're going to have with collective diaspora. I think it's it's only going to scale and grow and become more of the mainstream as we transition away from our old extraction sort of driven economic structures and exploitative organizational structures to something that's more based on justice for all. So, Anything that I can do to engineer serendipitous connections and random collisions, we'll definitely be doing that over the next few weeks as we get this live. So, and if there's anyone that you see within the network that you want to connect with, then just shout, and we'll connect you. And that leads me to the last
0: question, which is who do we interview next? <laughs> there are many people that I, I can think of. You know, two, there, there are a few, you know, many people. You, know, if you, you got a list that can make it for you. One that one that I've I've mentioned mentioned some. So Jillian Goddard at the Cross Atlantic Chocolate Collective, she is co-founder of the collective and has been a lead facilitator of that that growing co-op. And so they are you know cross-border as well, covering six or eight different countries in on the African continent, in the Caribbean, and in the U.S. And has been doing amazing work. Dr. Caroline Shinaz hussein uh, out of the University of Toronto has really been doing really important work uplifting rotating savings and credit associations and the economic tools that of black women across the diaspora that really are, you know, alternatives to how, how extractive financing works, So, yeah. you know. These are, that would be really interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, she's been, she's been doing great work and has been key in helping form a, a council of black women who are organizers of these rotating savings associations. So those are, those are two in, in particular that I think you should definitely have on your show. Well, let's start with those two.
1: The other, the other person as well that uh, springs to mind that you should talk to is Yvonne Moore. She runs Moore Philanthropy. I like Yvonne. She's doing great work as well. Great, excellent. I've enjoyed the conversation. I just think all these new structures, new new communities, collectives—it just it is the future. So I think it's just a really—it's exciting to be part of that journey. So I just wish you all the best of luck. Well, thank you. And let's let's just make this beginning of the conversation not the end. Yes.
0: Yeah, I Go. appreciate you inviting me to be on the show and us having this conversation. So it's been great.